BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we get the latest on the state's coronavirus surge and its vaccine rollout plans. California's share of U.S. coronavirus cases has increased dramatically, and COVID-19 patients are flooding hospitals, especially in hard-hit Southern California. For many healthcare workers, the arrival of the vaccine has been crucial. Now state officials are deciding who will get the next batch. We'll learn more after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. As California embarks on a large, complicated, and urgent vaccination campaign with COVID-19 cases at their highest levels, state officials are weighing who should get the next round of vaccines after healthcare workers and nursing home residents, and how to communicate the vaccine safety and effectiveness in order to increase uptake. Joining me to begin the hour is Kristen Choi, a nurse and professor and researcher at UCLA who took part in a vaccine trial and wrote this month in JAMA Internal Medicine about the importance of clinicians being prepared to discuss the vaccine and its potential side effects. Dr. Kristen Choi, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Mina. Thank you for having me. And so it seems like it would be a given that clinicians are prepared to talk about the vaccine and its side effects with patients. But what made you want to write this? I mean, are there things that happen in the clinical setting that make it hard for these discussions to get the time and attention they need? Sure, absolutely. So yeah, you're absolutely right that in most cases, you know, we do talk to patients before we give them vaccines or any other treatment and discuss possible side effects. But, you know, because I'm a practicing nurse myself, I often give flu shots. I know that sometimes in clinics we can get very busy and really glossed over what side effects can look like and feel like and what they mean. Um, and I think it's not because clinicians are trying to skip things or, or poorly intentioned, but we just get really busy in the clinic sometimes. And uh, I, I wrote this story because data show that with these new COVID vaccines, the rates of side effects are a bit higher than what we might see from the flu shot. And I mm. just think it's very important that physicians, nurses, pharmacists are ready to tell people uh, about the potential side effects and, and to make sure that they do it in a way that patients can understand rather than just, you know, handing them an info sheet or maybe glossing over some of the details. Yes, the, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines have been described as, quote, reactogenic. What does that mean exactly? 
Sure. So when we get a vaccine, uh, the way that vaccines work is that they activate our body's immune system. And this is a really clever way of uh, teaching our bodies to produce antibodies, which can protect us from a virus. Uh, but the immune system activation can also come along with some of the symptoms that we get when we're sick. Those would be things like fever, chills, a headache, muscle pain, etc. So when we say that a vaccine is reactogenic uh, and that people are experiencing reactogenic effects, it means that you may have some of those symptoms of illness, but that if you experience them after a vaccine, they're actually a signal that the vaccine is working and teaching your body how to fight the virus, uh, which in kind of a counterintuitive way is actually what we want from a vaccine. Now, you participated in a vaccine trial, and we should make clear that you don't know for sure if you were given the vaccine or the placebo when you participated. But can you explain why you wrote in your piece that you have a strong suspicion that you received the vaccine? So actually, since uh, I wrote that piece, I actually had the opportunity to be unblinded uh, from the oh. Pfizer study. So I, I did, and I've confirmed that I got the vaccine, which <laughs> okay. <is> great news. <laughs> Glad to um, hear it. But me too. It was uh, really wonderful news to hear. But at the time I wrote the article, even though at that time I was blinded and I didn't know, I was pretty sure that I had gotten the active vaccine because of the side effects I experienced. When I got home from the second injection, I developed chills, nausea, a headache, muscle pain. Uh, I developed a fever overnight. And the morning after my second injection, I woke up with a very high fever of almost 105 degrees. And all wow. of those symptoms are classic signs of a vaccine reaction. Again, as I mentioned earlier, signaling that uh, it's working as intended. And so those would be pretty unusual to have if I hadn't gotten the actual vaccine. Right. And those symptoms, I mean, those side effects, they sound quite strong. Is that a common effect? Is that type of reaction rare? I mean, 105 degree temperature? The good news is that that reaction of the fever, that high seems to be quite rare. Uh, looking at the data from both Pfizer and Moderna, uh, there's a fair number of folks that had mild to moderate side effects, the most common ones being fatigue and a headache. But fortunately, having any sort of fever and certainly a very high fever was extremely rare. So for most people, they don't need to expect having that kind of reaction. So for people listening to this and concerned about the risk of side effects, what message do you want to leave them with? Um, and also just generally people, the clinicians that you are, you know, encouraging to, to have these kinds of conversations with patients, what are the messages that you want to leave people with, with regard to the vaccine? So to people who are uh, thinking about the personal decision of whether or not to get this vaccine in light of the potential for side effects, what I would tell folks is that, uh, you know, the, the potential of having one day or two of feeling sick after a vaccine is a really small price to pay in relation to the risk of COVID and serious illness or even dying. Um, you know, when I look at what I experienced, it was really just one day of feeling sick and I felt perfect ever since then compared to what's happened to folks I know who have had COVID. A number of my own family members have had it and been in the hospital um, it's just so worth it. And I would go back and do it again in a heartbeat, even knowing that I might have a fever or some other side effects. What I would tell to uh, physicians and nurses, as well as the public, uh, too, is that it's really important to understand why these symptoms are happening. Again, when we have symptoms like a fever, fatigue, chills, muscle pain, they're a signal that the vaccine is working and that our bodies are learning how to protect itself from the virus. And that's a good thing. And, and it's very important that healthcare workers be sure to tell people that 
and explain the why. Again, in a busy clinic, uh, I know that sometimes we, we don't always take that extra step to explain that you may have side effects and here's why. And I think that if we can do that and take the time to answer people's questions and concerns, uh, we can help them be more confident about getting the vaccine and also very importantly, make sure that they come back for the second dose. Well, Christian Choi, really appreciate you coming on and sharing your experience as well, because I do think it's important for people to understand that there is no way you can get COVID-19 from the vaccine, which I know is a question that you absolutely. even got afterwards. So Christian yeah, Choi, absolutely. pediatric psychiatric registered nurse and health services researcher at UCLA School of Nursing. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Joining me now is Lisa Krieger, a science reporter for the Bay Area News Group. Lisa Krieger, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Mina. You've been writing about when people might get the vaccine. Can you explain what state officials in, are in the process of deciding right now with regard to the vaccine rollout? Um, yes, and, and thanks for the opportunity to describe this. It's, it's pretty complicated, but also just really fascinating. We're watching this roll out in real time, real policy decisions that have life and death consequences. So just quickly the backstory about how it works in California. We've got two work groups that are ensuring that their vaccines are distributed and administered equitably. One is called the Drafting Guidelines Work Group, and they're coming up with the actual prioritization and, and the allocation of the vaccine because supplies are limited. And then the second is called the Community Vaccine Advisory Committee, and they're providing really community-based input and feedback to that work group. So if listeners um, have an opinion and want to contribute, um, that's the group to write to. There's a whole public comment um, section that's open for public comments. Um, so after those recommendations are finalized and they're sent to the governor and then the California Department of Public Health provides a list of these recommendations to the local health departments. And then it's very local. You know, health departments will take it from there. So uh, to answer your question, so so... Uh, what's going on. So last week, the drafting guidelines working group proposed a list of who's in, we call it phase 1B. Now, your listeners will remember we're in phase 1A now, and that's healthcare workers like Kristen, um, and then people in long-term care facilities. Um, uh, 1B is the next group, and these are people who are at risk of exposure to COVID because of their work. So that includes education and child care folks, um, emergency service workers, and notably um, food and agriculture workers um, were prioritized. And then um, after that, and they've, up, they've updated the list from just a week or two ago, it also includes people who are over the age of 75. Um, and then as if that, that's... There's a lot there and a lot depends on supplies. After that, and we're still within 1B here, this phase, it'll go to um, a different set of workers. And those would be people who are in critical manufacturing and facilities and services, they call it transportation and logistics. That's really important. And then also people who are not yet 75, but over the age of 65, who are considered at high risk because of their um, you know, maybe chronic medical conditions or something like that. And, and finally, just what that drive. So this week, for people to be aware, um, a formal proposal will be made. Um, and then that community group will take it up again on January 6th. And then from there, it'll go to, again, the state and then the local um, health departments. And finally, and we can talk about this further, when, when is this all going to happen? So... 1A, we're doing that now. Um, it's rolling out in hospitals. Um, 1B, they're going to start uh, 
preparing in beginning to mid-January is what they're saying, and that the rollout of 1B will start in the middle to late January and then carry on through February. And then, of course, after that, there are other groups, and we can talk about who those people are. So then the state has essentially finalized who is going to be in the second group, because I know that as you mentioned, you know, there's been a lot of advocacy and even in some cases lobbying to make sure that certain workers are included in this second group after healthcare workers and uh, long-term care workers and residents. So teachers were on that list, as you say, ag workers were on yep. that list as well. I mean, has that has that been finalized or they're in that process of finalizing, but the fact they're that they've gotten that- to that point of proposal, it's looking very likely then? Yes, looking very likely. Uh, They're in the process of formalizing. It's not yet formalized, but it's looking very likely. And and I'll add here that we're really taking our cues from the CDC, which um, has very, very similar guidelines. And, you know, there are national differences and there'll be regional differences. If if I lived in Tahoe and I consider a snowplow operator pretty essential, um, but but that's certainly not the case in the Bay Area. So there will be regional differences. But yes, we're approaching finalization on that. I see. So counties will have some leeway to tweak the state's uh, rollout depending on what their specific needs are. Precisely. We're talking with Lisa Krieger, science reporter for the Bay Area News Group, about California's vaccine distribution and also about its latest surge, which makes the vaccine and vaccination so crucial, especially for our healthcare workers. I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What are your questions about the state's vaccine rollout? What are your questions about California's surge in cases of COVID-19? You can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions or comments to forum at kqed.org. I'm Mina Kim. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about California's vaccine rollout plans with Lisa Krieger, a science reporter for the Bay Area News Group. And you, our listeners, are joining us. 866-733-6786 is the number to call if you have questions. Again, 866-733-6786. Reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email us at forum at kqed.org. And Lisa Krieger, just before the break, we were talking about the next group to get the vaccines. But I mean, how many vaccines are slated to arrive and when? Because I think the group you're describing, especially if you include people also over the age of 75, becomes quite large. It becomes very large. And how the whole timetable is very much dependent on doses arriving. Um, So 
we're looking at about 2.5 million dose people being or doses and people being vaccinated for December. By January, we're going to get an additional 3.75 million doses is what we're expecting. Um, so that will mostly cover who's in phase 1B. You know, these 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 population groups get a whole lot larger and the boundaries become fuzzier as we uh, roll this out. So um, 1C, which will include adults 65 to 74, and then people with other conditions, and then other working groups, construction workers, other people who are important. And then clearly, as we move into phase two and phase three, um, a whole lot of um, people wanting and needing vaccination. So it's going to get a lot more complicated quickly. You know, within the hospitals, it's all been pretty clear cut. Um, We are getting more vaccines, though. We've um, Pfizer has committed an additional 100 million doses. Moderna's um, also ramping up. And then the other good news is we've got two other vaccines uh, coming online. So people have heard of Johnson Johnson and then AstraZeneca. Mm-hmm. Um, that will increase supplies as well. We're supposed to get some data from Johnson Johnson in January, I think mid-January. And that'll really tell us a lot about um, how much, how effective is that vaccine. There are initial signs that it's not as effective as as the Pfizer and Moderna. Those are this wonderful technology called messenger RNA. Um, so on the other hand, the Johnson Johnson vaccine is going to be a lot easier. It doesn't have the cold storage capabilities. It's um, one dose, not two. So it, it, it'll be just a fascinating issue for us to ponder of, of are, are you – you know, as a as a as a resident of California, are are you hap- satisfied with something that's sixty or seventy percent effective? Is that good enough? Um, if the trade off is, it's just a whole lot simpler. Yes, we're learning so much as we go. Well, joining me now is Dr. Timothy Brewer, professor of epidemiology and medicine at UCLA. Dr. Brewer, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I mean, we're talking about vaccinations, and of course, vaccinations for healthcare workers, first responders, and so on have come at a crucial moment because we are encountering the highest number of infections in California so far of this pandemic. I mean, you've said that you're very concerned about the next two months. Why? What are we facing? Well, I think the challenge is if you look at what's happened in California, we've basically had exponential growth in COVID cases and hospitalization since Halloween. And there's really no sign that that's slowing down. We're also going into the winter where we know that cold temperatures and lower humidities increase the transmission of respiratory viruses like SARS-CoV-2, and people spend more time indoors. And we know that transmission is more likely to happen in close proximity indoors than when people are outdoors. So all of those together suggest that the next two months in particular are likely to be a very difficult time for us. And are you concerned about people who gathered at Christmas or have you gotten any sense right now as to whether people heeded stay at home orders and tried to really limit gatherings? So, so I haven't seen any good data, but I was on a, a town hall put together by Senator Mike McGuire, where the Marin County Public Health Officer also participated. And at least when they looked at their contact tracing data, it suggested that people meeting in small gatherings in private 
homes was driving at least the infection in Marin County. And I've heard similar reports for Los Angeles County where I'm based as well. So I do think that the holidays could be a, a problem for us if people were not heeding the stay-at-home orders. And we've just been hearing about how catastrophic potentially things could be and uh, are looking like they they will be in Los Angeles uh, with regard to doctors seeing more and more people flooding ICUs. There is some talk that they could be forced to ration care in an even more extreme way. Are you concerned that that's going to happen? Very concerned. And and the limiting factor is actually not the the space, it's the people. So we mm-hmm. we can't we can actually increase space. So there are there are parts of the hospital like recovery rooms that we could convert into ICU type facilities. But the problem is you have to staff them. And it's not just doctors and nurses, it's respiratory techs, it's all of the ancillary support that goes along with supporting a modern intensive care unit. And and you just can't pull those people out of nowhere. And unlike what happened in New York back in March, we're really seeing widespread disease across the entire country. So it's not like we could even draw from other parts of the country just because they're facing their own challenges. Well, Kirsten writes, given the hotspots in East LA and the Central Valley, should we prioritize vaccinating those populations after healthcare workers, that is? Dr. Brew, what are your thoughts on that? So I think that's a very interesting question. Unfortunately, we don't know if these vaccines actually prevent transmission or not. What we do know is they prevent serious disease. And so the question is, do you target areas where there's a lot of transmission or do you consider targeting populations that are more likely to be hospitalized or have serious disease? And I think these are very important questions that we probably have not spent as much time thinking about as we should. Well, let me go to caller Rajni in Oakland. Hi, Rajni. Hi, thanks for taking my question. Um, I was curious for um, nannies, other childcare workers, construction workers, or otherwise who are part of the informal economy, how will they be expected to prove their essential status to receive the vaccine? Hmm. Good question, Rajni. Lisa Krieger, do you know? It's, we're still trying to, we're figuring that out. I mean, clearly, if you have a employer, it's very easy for the employer to offer verification. For those that do not have um, a steady employer to offer verification, that gets a whole lot harder. And, and that um, is- TBD. TBD. Yeah, that's yeah. something that the working groups are aware of, though, it sounds like, and, and need to. Yes, address. yep. Well, this listener yep. asks, does the educational worker group include university and college staff and faculty or just K-12? Lisa Krieger. I believe it includes, I will, while we're on this call, I'll look it up, but I believe it includes uh, universities as well. But clearly K-312 is the priority. And I'll also add that there are also sub-priorities within each of these groups. So, um, but K-312 is a priority. And then uh, daycare, um, early child care is a priority as well. You know, Dr. Brewer, can you just sort of set our expectations about how and when enough people will have been vaccinated 
that there will actually be broad benefit. I mean, even as people are talking about when they might fall in line along that schedule, as more people get vaccinated, it's a benefit to everybody. But I think there's some question about, you know, how long we will still need to practice safety measures, because as you say, we don't know if it's still transmissible, right? Even after you get the vaccine, that you can still transmit the illness? That's exactly right. So think about the difference between inactivated polio vaccine and oral polio vaccine. So the SOC vaccine was the original polio vaccine. And what it did is it prevented polio, but it did not prevent polio transmission. So it wasn't until the Sabin vaccine, the oral polio vaccine was developed that we could actually interrupt transmission and make polio go away. And we don't know where we stand yet with the the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. There's some preliminary data to suggest that the AstraZeneca vaccine may prevent transmission, but that's very preliminary, small number of people. No data yet from either the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines, but those are both under study. So because of that, even if you've been vaccinated and I've had my first dose, I'll get my second dose in about a week um, because I'm a frontline healthcare worker, takes care of COVID patients, but uh, I'll still need to wear my mask. I'll still need to stay home if I'm sick. I'll still need to wash my hands, do good hand hygiene and maintain that physical distancing because I don't know if that vaccine is actually gonna protect me from infection or just protect me from disease. You know, we've been hearing a lot lately about this UK variant of the virus. Can you talk a little bit about how concerned we should be about that, especially as more countries start reporting cases of this UK version of the virus, including Canada? Sure. So the first thing you need to realize is that SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19 disease, is an RNA virus. And the reason why that's important is all RNA viruses mutate as they replicate and are transmitted. So that's a natural common occurrence. We expect that to happen. Most of these mutations have no important impacts on the virus at all but they can. So the particular uh, UK virus, there have been 17 mutations or changes in the genetic code that have been identified in this particular virus. At least one of those mutations, the name's not important, it's called N501Y, is occurring in a place in the spike protein where the spike protein binds to the receptor in the human cell. And so the question is, does that seem to change transmissibility? Mm-hmm. And there's some modeling data from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine to suggest maybe it does. There's also some um, deletions in that particular virus, which means that some of our diagnostic assays may miss the virus because of where they're looking at in the spike protein gene. So I think that may also be important but we still need to wait and see how important these mutations actually are, if at all. No evidence to suggest that this virus is more virulent or deadly than the other viruses. Okay, but what about in terms of vaccine effectiveness? There were some questions around this, Lisa Krieger, that the UK strain um, might, that the vaccines might not be as effective against this UK strain. What are we hearing now, or at least lately? 
I have not heard that. I will, and, and Dr. Brewer can elaborate. The beauty of the messenger RNA vaccines is that you really can um, adapt them very quickly to, uh, to combat the prevailing strain. So, I'm, mm. you know, we've got that in our back pocket and um, certainly possible. Uh, do you know, Dr. Brewer, my, my understanding is that the vaccines are presumed to be effective against um, that, all, strain, all that, strains at this point. Yeah, no, that's my understanding as well. There are eight mutations reported in the spike protein of this new variant, but whether they have any effect on the vaccines at all, I'm not aware of any data to, to support that. I do know that both Pfizer and Moderna are undertaking studies to look at that. So we should have those, those data soon. Well, let me go to caller John in Saratoga. Hi, John. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much for addressing this important issue. Uh, I was just wondering, uh, we know that people with mental health challenges are particularly vulnerable to the health effects of long-term isolation, such as with this, uh, with these lockdowns. And uh, pre-COVID, we were already in a mental health crisis that's been well-documented. You know, suicide and overdose, those depths of despair have been on the rise for decades. And I just want to know, um, what can be done to protect these, these vulnerable members of our population and those who work directly with them, such as social workers or even volunteers doing street outreach? Um, if I could jump yeah, in, Mina. Um, John, terrific question. I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, there are, are some eloquent public comments uh, made to the community working group to say not just physical illness, but mental illness. We need to include that as well. And I, I think that feedback will be enormously helpful as they're trying to decide within this 1B group um, who deserves priority. And your point's very well well taken. Yeah, it is a really interesting point, John, because Lisa, I mean, it does sound like the prioritization has been kind of based on, on sector or age uh, as opposed to this. And you know, James tweets, can we propose amending Category 1B to add journalists from first principles based on the optimal algorithm to prevent spreading the virus? So this person is interested in, in journalists. Can you just quickly explain for our listeners ways that they can weigh in on this prioritization process when it comes to the vaccine? Right. So if you go to the California Department of Public Health uh, website and then just Google community work, um, it's called Community Vaccine Advisory Committee. And you'll see a link to their site and you'll see the public comments. And then there's also a, a way that you can provide input. Now's the time. They're meeting January 6th to review what will be the formal proposal by the um, drafting guidelines work group. So now's the time. And then and we'll move through these groups and then. 1B will have different tiers, and then, of course, 1C, and then then we go to phase one and phase two, and I know it's complicated. Um, you'll notice there are already companies like Lyft that have weighed in. Amazon has weighed in. Newspaper publishers have weighed in. I think we're currently in 1C of uh, priority groups. But um, absolutely, and then, as John referenced, people working with the disabled and then people with emotional illness, uh, not just physical illness. Well, Laura writes, immunocompromised and autoimmune patients cannot get live vaccines. So are these vaccines made with live viruses? Also, I've been hearing that there is a quarantine period following receiving the vaccine. Is this true? I mean, Lisa Krieger, you were talking about the beauty of mRNA vaccines. Can you address Laura's question? Right. Um, uh, absolutely. My understanding is 
so the messenger RNA vaccine is is not a live virus. Um, there's it's not infectious, it's not dangerous. Um, basically, what it does is it instructs cells to make a protein that's found on the virus, and then that revs up the body's immune system. So, this spike protein is a call that just sits on the surface. It's just a very small and non-infectious portion of the virus, um, but it's enough to trigger the immune system so that we can prepare, you know, defenses in case the actual virus um, does make its way into this and not cause for concern. Um, and and ditto for the Johnson Johnson AstraZeneca, different platform. They use something called a um, adenovirus. And um, Dr. Brewer, you should feel free to weigh in here. But my understanding is that the adenovirus enters a cell and then they read the DNA and they produce the protein and then the body responds. Um, mm-hmm. So, How um, is that, uh, Dr. Brewer, AstraZeneca vaccine slightly different from Moderna's and Pfizer's or maybe very different? So no, Lisa did a terrific job. So what the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines are doing is they're just giving a little piece of code. So think of it like computer code or software. And then the muscle cells in the body take that code and they make a, they make a protein. So we've never had mRNA vaccines before. So these are the first vaccines that we've ever had, but our bodies make mRNA all the time. We use it to to build our own proteins. And all you're doing is you're just telling the cell, read this code instead of, instead of that code. And as the protein is made, the immune sick system recognizes that protein as a foreign protein rather than a natural body protein and then it generates a response to contain it and so when the virus comes with that same protein the immune system already recognizes that spike protein and can generate a, an effective response in contrast what they're doing with the johnson and johnson and astrazeneca is Rather than injecting the code directly, they've incorporated the code into another virus called an adenovirus. In the case of AstraZeneca, it's actually a chimpanzee adenovirus that cannot replicate in humans. Well, Dr. Brewer, we'll get into more detail just right after the break. This is Forum. Stay with us. We've all got those parts of our house where the Internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about California's coronavirus surge, when the state will get more vaccines, and how they'll be distributed. We're talking with Lisa Krieger, a science reporter for the Bay, reporter for the Bay Area News Group, and Dr. Timothy Brewer, a professor of epidemiology and medicine at UCLA. And you are listeners. And, and Dr. Brewer, just before the break, please finish your th- what you were saying about the vaccine and their differences. Yeah. No. So so very quickly, just. Um... It's just a question of how you get the information into the body so the immune system can recognize it. In the case of the mRNA vaccines, they're doing it by sending the code indirectly into muscle cells. In the case of the adenovirus vaccines, they're just using a different virus, not the coronavirus, to get that information in. Well, let me go to caller Matthew in Berkeley. Hi, Matthew. Hi. Hi. 
Well, I'm, I'm, I'm struck by what the Dr. Brewer said about the fact that we don't yet know whether the vaccine, or for that matter, natural, natural infection, creates immunity. If it's the case that it does not inhibit or prevent infection, aren't we being somewhat illusory when we talk about herd, herd immunity? I mean, won't the virus continue to rage even if we get to 80 percent vaccination? Uh, Dr. Brewer. If the, if the, oh, if sorry, Matthew, no, you weren't done. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, assuming there is, the, it turns out that it does not prevent transmission of the disease. Isn't herd, herd immunity illusory, even at 80% vaccination rates? Matthew, thanks. Dr. Brewer? So, so, Matthew, you are correct that if the vaccines do not prevent herd immunity in the sense of they don't prevent transmission, then yes, transmission will still occur. But if they per- completely prevent disease, then the question is, do you really care that much about transmission if nobody's getting, getting sick from the virus? Ultimately, what we would like is a vaccine that does, that does both. But to use the polio example, an activated soft vaccine was very effective in preventing disease, but it did not prevent transmission of the virus. Matthew, thanks for the question. He mentioned 80%, right? I'm wondering if you could or if you have any clarity on what actually will be required for herd immunity, because this has been sort of a point of controversy, especially lately, as Dr. Fauci was raising basically the percentage of vaccine uptake needed. So, So the first thing to remember is herd immunity is a concept that really best describes what happens in vaccination. So While natural infection does generate immunity, meaning the person who has recovered from the infection is usually protected from getting that infection again, including getting, transmitting it to to others. So in that sense, they, they do have, quote, herd immunity. Natural infections tended never to go away because there were always susceptible people in the population. So polio never went away until we had a polio vaccine that could interrupt transmission. So once we have this vaccine, then it really depends on how contagious is the pathogen. In the case of SARS-CoV-2, we're talking probably closer to about 60 to 70% of the population rather than 80% of the population. Well, Randy writes, I would expect be prioritized who is most likely to require ICU beds. Is that the case or what weight is that given? Scheduling is obvious for healthcare workers and long-term facility occupants, but what about me? Should I expect my healthcare provider to reach out to me when a dose is ready for me? Or am I supposed to call in when I hear my group is eligible? Randy goes on to say, what about people who don't have health insurance? What about the homeless? Which you can address as well, Lisa Krieger, but, but quite a few questions there. Do you know, at, at least at the very, at the outset, <laughs> how people will be uh, told that they should yes, get the My understanding is, right, uh, thank you, um, Mina, and a great question. My understanding is, is that your health care provider will reach out to you. That's the plan. And your point's very well taken about people at risk of being in ICU. And I think we're really trying to strike a compromise here between two high-risk groups. You know, you've got people the older people, but you also have frontline essential workers. So um, very different populations, um, both are at high risk for two different reasons. And 
so they're, they're, we're balancing two goals, right? One goal is to reduce severe illness, and the other goal is to keep society functioning and keep the economy healthy or, or restore the economy to health. So it's a, a balancing act. But yes, absolutely, uh, your health, um, when you become eligible, your health care provider is supposed to reach out to you. So based on the way California is handling it, I mean, what do you think it tells you about about what is driving California's decisions? The economy, um, the elderly, or people who are most vulnerable, or are yeah, they they're really they're trying both? to straddle both. Yeah, thank you. They're they're trying to straddle both. So uh, several weeks ago, the working group guidelines really focused on those at the front lines of the economy. Um, but then the CDC weighed in um, a week ago Sunday, and they said we actually need to protect the very the, the elderly as well. So we're trying to do both. Um, it's a it's a it's a delicate delicate act I mean, but i'll but i'll jump in and and dr brewer addressed this as well to the extent our icus are filled up and at zero capacity we're all at risk right so there's benefit to all of us to keeping the elderly out of the icus yes absolutely we're all at risk and and this has been a question dr brewer in terms of you know people whether or not you know, elective surgeries or other sort of visits should be canceled and, and what kind of risks those kinds of things pose. I and mean, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit or add to what Lisa was saying. So that's already happening, right? So many of the hospital systems around the state are cutting back on those kinds of operations as they did back in March and April when this first happened. And what you have to remember there's a lot of things we call elective really aren't that elective. So, you know, if you have coronary artery disease and you should be following up with your healthcare provider. And if you need to get your knee replaced, then while quote, it's elective, it really has an impact on your quality of life. Well, and uh, Lisa, I don't know if you had any um, information for Randy about people who don't have health insurance or the homeless in terms of getting vaccinated? So homeless are included in uh, 1B as well, um, a little bit further down the list. Not sure what the plans are to vaccinate them, but clearly that's the mission of our wonderful public health departments, which are doing a completely stoic job under very difficult circumstances and not enough funding, I will add, from the federal government. Wanted to jump in really quickly, Mina, if you don't mind, um, with respect to ICUs, because people might be interested, just some new numbers from over the weekend. Our case counts about double of what we saw over Thanksgiving and about six times what we saw from early October. When we were looking at ICUs, um, and Dr. Brewer addressed this briefly, Southern California, San Joaquin Valleys, we're now at 0% ICU capacity. That doesn't mean there are no ICU beds at all because the state uses this weighted formula to decide because um, you need to keep some open for folks without COVID, um, but it really does burden the healthcare system. So the Bay Area, um, we're waiting for updated numbers at generally about 11 o'clock in the morning, we find out, but Bay Area is averaging about 11% ICU capacity. That was as of Saturday, and that's down from just a couple of weeks ago when we had 17%. And then in the greater Sacramento area, it's about um, 17, 18% and 28% in Northern California. And, and your listeners will know that 
our lockdowns that we're experiencing now are, are set by these ICU levels. So really any level that drops below 15%, that's what triggers these lockdowns. Dr. Brewer, if people gathered over Christmas and were exposed, is it likely that they would be infectious around New Year's Eve? I'm <laughs> just thinking people might gather for New Year's Eve. <laughs> Getting together again. So, so that's exactly right. So the incubation period on average is somewhere between two and five days, which means if you got exposed over Christmas, you're going to get sick or if you develop symptoms and not everybody does about two to five days later after that. And then you can spread that from about two days before you get sick to about six days after you get sick. So that's the time if you are infected with SARS-CoV-2 that you're most likely to spread it to, to someone else. Well, I hope, uh, Lisa's uh, numbers about what's happening right now with our ICUs help people really think hard about that. Uh, Britt in Santa Rosa is on the line. Hi, Britt. Join us. Hi. Thank you so much for taking my call. I'm a, a stay-at-home single father of a daughter with Rett syndrome, and she has been quarantined 100% since the 1st of March. Nobody in, nobody out, except for her sisters and transferring to her, her mother. And we've all been taking this course. We want to get back. Obviously, my business now is gone. I have an event planner in Napa, Sonoma. We want to get back to somewhat of normality, but I know that they've not tested children who are highly immunocompromised with Rett syndrome specifically and with other kids. When and where will they get tested so we can begin to get back to a, a normal life? Britt, thanks. And Lisa, Britt Sonodone, Angela asks, can you tell me about the vaccine for kids? Will they get vaccinated? And in Britt's case, it sounds like he's a special needs child. So what can you tell Britt? Right. So the challenge, of course, is that the vaccines really were not tested in people under the age of uh, 16. Uh, and I'm, he didn't specify what age his daughter is. Um, phase two. So one, one C, which is next, which we're looking at probably spring and summer, we're looking at people between the ages of 16 and 64 with high risk conditions, which um, she would be eligible and then uh, phase two, which is beyond that, would be everyone over the age of 16, um, irrespective of conditions. And Brianne writes, wondering when other healthcare workers, i.e. dentists, will be included for the vaccine. Dentists and hygienists are particularly at risk because of aerosolized treatments, but I do not hear their occupation being mentioned in the rollout phases, and I'm worried about my 74-year-old dentist father. Yeah, they were conspicuously absent from the proposal presented, um, and there were many letters written in to say, please consider them for phase 1B. So it's there are a lot of competing demands, and um, clearly oral care and dentists belong in there someplace. I think the state's trying to figure out exactly where. And forgive me, I just want to go back to the earlier call. Yes. It's absolutely essential that we start looking at how these vaccines perform and people under the age of 16. You know, there's always the issue of informed consent, which the doctor can address better with, with um, children and teens. Um, but these vaccines absolutely do need to be tested in younger people. The wisdom, the, you know, conventional wisdom is because they're less severely affected, um, that is not as critical to protect them. Um, um, but clearly, there are exceptions in people with these other illnesses. 
We're talking with Lisa Krieger, a science reporter for Bay Area News Group, and Dr. Timothy Brewer, professor of epidemiology and medicine at the University of California, Los Angeles. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Again, 866-733-6786 to join the conversation by phone. Email forum at kqed.org or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Uh, Dr. Brewer, I don't know if you had any additional thoughts on kids and vaccinations that you wanted to add to what Lisa was saying. So just that both Moderna and Pfizer have started trials or are planning to roll out trials looking at 12 and older. So hopefully we'll have some data there too, but that doesn't address what the what to do with, with children under 12. The Advisory Committee of Immunization Practices sometimes will extrapolate from adults when making decisions about vaccines in children, but I agree with Lisa that it would be better to get those data and know for sure. Harvey writes, does it make sense to get an antibody test sometime after being vaccinated to confirm that immunity was effectively conferred? Dr. Brewer? So uh, interesting question. Nobody's recommending that right now. They certainly are doing that as part of the studies. And at least based on the data so far, the antibody levels that are generated by both the Moderna and and the Pfizer vaccine seem to be higher than what occurs with natural infection. And they've studied that for up to three months after vaccination. And so far, there doesn't seem to be any drop off in protection. So in a trial setting, that makes sense for individuals who are being vaccinated probably not necessary unless you have some reason to be concerned like immunocompromised population where you think the vaccine might not work as well. Let me go to Linda in Santa Rosa. Hi, Linda. Hi, Linda. Are you there? Uh, Yes, I am. Thank you. Sure. I can hear you now. Go right ahead. Okay, great. Question is this. If a person in the past has had reactions to other vaccines, such as for flu, uh, they get the uh, inoculation and you have to go to bed for the next several days as they battle what, what flu symptoms. What might be the reaction when a, that kind of person uh, gets the vaccine? Mm. Are you wondering if they're more likely to have a, a reaction to the coronavirus vaccine if they have a reaction to the flu vaccine, essentially? Exactly. Uh, Dr. Exactly. So, um, Lisa, no evidence to suggest that there's any cross reaction between the two vaccines. Uh, I've gotten both, for example. Uh, But people who have had a history of severe allergies should talk with their healthcare providers before getting the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine, because as the vaccine has rolled out, both the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine have very rarely been associated with severe anaphylactic-like reactions. So if you do have a history of severe allergies, whether that's to vaccines or to medicines, it would be worth talking with your healthcare provider before getting the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. Well, this listener writes, I'm an essential worker that has some reservations at this point about vaccinations. Can an employer require an employee be vaccinated? Lisa Krieger? That's a controversial issue, and it's it's entirely the employer's prerogative, is my understanding, to require that. Um, that being said, we have not heard of anyone actually moving that direction. And it's interesting, UCSF, for instance, a healthcare provider, um, is not mandating vaccines um, of its employees. 
but um, I'm sure this will be taken up and there'll be legal cases. Kevin writes, I own a restaurant in San Francisco and worry about my staff catching COVID-19 despite our best efforts. Are restaurant workers included in the 1B vaccine group as food workers? My understanding is they are. Food, it's food processing, you know, ag workers out in the field, and actual food production. Um, in the restaurant setting specifically, I am not sure. They may be in 1C. They're sort of on the cusp. Mm. Well, and again, of course, people can get this information and see what the working group is working on on the state's website. Uh, right. And if I just, could just jump yeah, in. Yeah, you know, so when the, the food, So I think, the, I'm sorry, the big concern is people that work in food processing where they're shoulder to shoulder and then out picking crops. But restaurant workers would be behind them in line, but also important. Thank you. Yeah, and we've certainly had, of course, those cases in um, poultry plants and so on that we've heard so much yep. about. I don't know, Dr. Bruff, if you have 20 seconds to address Stephen, who writes, what can we say to allay the fears of someone who is concerned about the possible unknown long-term effects of a vaccine? So, Stephen, that's part of why we developed systems to follow people who've been vaccinated. So both the FDA and the CDC, and the CDC has a new system called Safe. You can get a phone app and type in if you have any reactions after the vaccine. But one of the things we'll have to do is just wait and see what happens. But given that these uh, mRNA vaccines do not get incorporated into the cells at all other than to make the protein and are rapidly degraded, there's no reason to believe they should have any long-term effects at all. Dr. Brewer and Lisa Krieger, thank you both for your time today. Thanks to our listeners for their questions and comments. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.